From the Skies to Survival, an inspiring journey with Robert Cujo Teschner. Join us in this exclusive interview, a former fighter pilot and resilient cancer survivor, Robert Cujo Teschner, dive into his unique upbringing that shaped his dreams of soaring the skies and how it influenced the person he is today. Discover his passion-driven journey to becoming a fighter pilot and the twists and turns that led him to his current profession. This is a tale of dreams, determination, and survival that will leave you inspired and moved. Tune in now and welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show. You're about to go on a wellness-driven ride. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education. That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children. On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent, or have been in the game for a while. We invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together. I'm going to share with you a little bit more about the guest we have here today. Robert Cujo Teshner, a retired F-15, F-22 fighter pilot and combat veteran, has extensive experience in tactical planning, execution, and organizational leadership. He's a former F-15 weapons school instructor, F-22 squadron commander, and senior joint staff officer with advanced degrees in operational art and science and national security strategy. From 2004 to 2006, he was the U.S. Air Force's debriefing expert, teaching military teams to continuously self-correct and improve. After retiring due to cancer-related complications, he founded VMAX Group, a St. Louis-based international business consulting firm, to enhance team effectiveness and work satisfaction. I am so pleased to welcome today, Cujo. Hey. Hey, April. It's great to be here with you. And oh, by the way, what a beautiful introduction. 
Oh, well, it's my honor, sir. I'm so excited to have you here to share your journey. You have a lot of tales to tell. And so let's get started by sharing with the audience a little bit more about you. What would you like to know? How can I set things up for you? Where do we start the journey? Let's start the journey. Well, you can go as far back as you want, but what really inspired you to get involved in military initially? How was that founded? Great question. Um, son of a, of a war refugee, my mother fled um, Stalin's forces, was very, um, very much a transient, a nomad, uh, made her way from Zagreb into Germany, Germany into Brazil, Brazil to the United States. Grandfather has multiple PhDs and ended up as a janitor in Cleveland. Uh, and eventually they make their way to St. Louis where my mom meets my dad. And I'd say the that side of the family history was very much one of those typical American tales, uh, folks seeking opportunity here. And what's interesting is, as a young girl in war-torn Germany in the reconstruction phase there, my mother and her sisters, they um, they subsided off of handouts that they got from the GI, specifically evaporated milk and chocolate that the soldiers uh, would give away to the kids in this, in this war-ravaged city of Munich. And years later, my mother would, would meet my father, a young Air Force officer, and uh, and give birth eventually to three boys, all of whom became military folk. And uh, I think it's it's pretty neat how that transpired. In my case, I was very deeply influenced by the fact that my father was in the military, he was in the Air Force. He was a, an attorney in the Air Force, a judge advocate general. And so we were moving, we were moving every three years to a different part of the planet. And what I found that was consistent in my life was the Air Force family. So we'd uproot, we'd, we'd, you know, start getting some roots in Texas, and then it was time to move to California, start feeling like we're in the California way of life, then we're moving to Germany, really kind of immerse ourselves in a German culture, find our way to Alabama. And that, that process continued all the way through until I went off to the academy. And what I found was, was the one consistent piece was the Air Force family. These are other people who were living the same kind of lifestyles. They got it. And um, and that was it. So when dad retired, I knew that I had to continue because my family was there, not here, wherever there was. And that makes we- a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I've heard that many times, Cujo, where, you know, the, that is very, very strong. That family that you have and create and maintain, it's very strong, very thick. And that makes a lot of sense to me that you went that way. I I really want to go back again on this journey of your family uh, with your grandfather and your mother. What incredible stories that is. So this idea of service in military life is really embedded deeply, I would think, within you because you've had so many ideas and and stories behind that on both ends of the spectrum whereas it's a it's a person who may be uh, victimized from causes of war or upheaval and also the other side of that servitude where you want to try to help and alleviate all of those things that are happening yeah if you, i mean so here it is you know grandparents are sitting there looking at the at the prognosis 
they don't think that Stalin's going to be a good a good person to run you know their country they see soviet forces moving westbound into croatia and they've got a choice to make uh stay here where they're comfortable where they've got family living in the family estate and and kind of just make the most of whatever the future holds or option b give away everything that you've got take only what it is that you can carry hope that somehow you can survive to the point where you can make it to freedom where potentially you can start a new life and have a better future for your kids grandparents went with option b which mm -hmm. now that i'm a parent you know living in a disruptive world i wonder if i would have had the guts to do what they did and they a strong reflection yeah oh yeah i mean just think about it. you know we're so accustomed to a very very happy easy good life i mean you turn the light switch on the lights are going to come on turn the air conditioning mm -hmm. on you're going to be in comfort um heat's the same way these are <laughs> these are things that we consider to be necessities these are clearly features of absolute comfort and and yeah. could we give that up in order to be free I, you know that's a that's a fascinating reflection i feel like there was more that was given up and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I heard. The grandfather ha came from education and then with that transition, let go of that and and started from scratch, started from the very, very bottom. So not only is it uh, taking away your comforts and your security, but you're taking away pieces of your identity. That's exactly right. I mean, to have a PhD is a pretty big deal. To have two in two different languages is, I'd say, an even bigger deal. Yes. Grandfather could speak 15 languages fluently, not wow. uncommon in those days to, to be able to speak a lot, especially in Europe. To, to, to give all of that up and to humble yourself and to yeah. come in and start at the bottom rung while getting a master's degree in another foreign language so that you can equip your daughters to live a better life. That's, that's pretty amazing. It and is very amazing. We talk about these stories all the time, you know, and, and if there's one thing that was consistent in all of them, my grandparents were so happy that they made it here and they were so blessed that everything worked out and that their daughters had the lives that they did and, and ended up starting their own families over here. And, and that factored indefinitely to what it was that I wanted to do with my life. I thought there was something noble about being part of something that's bigger than yourself, that's tied to preserving the good that you enjoy. And so definitely influences uh, where it is that I want to take my, my future. Add to it the fact that we had a, an, an amazing sense of family, and that's a good one-two punch. Yeah, absolutely. I. I really appreciate and admire that you had such influences, very fortunate indeed to have, and that they're happy people and really show up in the world that way. I can tell that reflection with you. Your smile is just beaming. And so I love having people on the show that really have that within them and they portray that to the world because life isn't easy. And you, sir, have seen many, many things where it's it's not great, but you also hold in and have that understanding of the spirit of those who have uh, struggled even more so than you, such as your grandparents. So I think that's a beautiful thing. Well, and it's it, it kind of goes back to a, a general sense of somebody somewhere always has it worse. 
And, and so no matter how bad your worst day is, there's somebody that's in the same boat and probably having a harder time and, and yet they're making it. And so we can take some degree of comfort in that and encouragement in that you're not alone. None of us is, I mean, and everybody's got their struggles. So that's just part of it. We'll talk about the back end or the other side of this struggle coin uh, here, hopefully in just a little bit. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, walking into that, you've, you've had this extensive military career and, and going on to serve in other capacities, lead in other capacities. And you, you have this story of grandparents really going through this intense struggle transition. I'm curious, have you ever, I, I'm sure not to the extent, but what have been the most extraordinary transitions and identity crisis that you have faced? Yeah. I, I mean, and there are different, different levels of severity. I think probably the, the first one of those major struggles was not getting accepted to the Air Force Academy, which was my ambition for college since I was a little kid. I remember seeing the movie Star Wars when it came out and being very deeply influenced by Luke Skywalker. I mean, I really mm. I wanted to be just like Luke. He wanted to go to some academy somewhere. And so that set in my mind the notion that I ought to do the same thing. He wanted to fly something cool for the rebellion. Eventually it becomes an X-wing in my world that translates to F-15. So I had this, this, this massive vision starting as a little kid, four-year-old kid. And when I got my letter back from the United States Air Force Academy saying, we're sorry, uh, thanks a lot for applying, um, but you might want to pursue something else. I didn't even say try again. That was a, <laughs> pretty, that was a pretty significant blow. The, I mean, I think the bigger blow was that there wasn't even a, we look forward to getting your application next year. It was kind of like, good luck, dude. And uh, don't let the door hit you as you, as you leave this virtual and processing thing. So that was kind of tough. Uh, a good test, actually, to see how do you respond. You don't know who you are until you've been tested. And that was an unwanted test, but it, it did something good for me. I got a chance to see how did I respond to this and it didn't break me. It didn't, you know, crush me. I didn't find myself trapped in my room crying for days. Instead, I sat there and, and thought to myself, all right, so there's going to have to be another way. What's that other way going to be? How are we going to still achieve the goal? Cause the X wing still on the table. You know, my F 15 is still out there somewhere. Um, I just got to now reorient how it is that I'm going to get there. And as I went into that reorientation, I was at peace. I'm like, all right, adversity is good. It's going to make a stronger kind of a thing. And a couple of months, maybe, maybe it was six weeks, six to eight weeks later, I get a, uh, actually my mom delivers the message to me in person that she got a call from the Senator saying, congratulations, you've made it. I think I was the last member of my academy class to get an acceptance. I think I got an acceptance because multiple people turned theirs down, but I'll take it. You know, <laughs> Taylor and Charlie will still take it. And off we were to the race. And there was a series of those that took place both at the academy and thereafter that kind of reinforced this notion of it's probably not going to go the way that you wanted it to, this thing called life. The question is, how do you respond to that? And can you can you roll with the punches? Uh, and that was that was that was good. That was good testing, good formation, a great lead up to the ultimate test, which was, hey, congratulations. We think you might have colorectal cancer. It's mm -hmm. going to take us five days to find out just how sick you are. Uh, good luck. That was probably the that was probably the toughest 
the toughest punch. Definitely a gut punch, literally and figuratively. Yeah. And um, it, it, it put the, everything, everything to the test. Well, so you're, you're a very strong man. What did that feel like initially when they told you that? I mean, did you, did you feel this sense of doom or was it like when you got that first letter and you're like, okay, so this is it now what? And I'm just curious how you responded. Yeah. Okay. Great question. Uh, let me give you some context on this. You know, we're getting this, we're getting this news while I'm in a post command, go take some time off and get ready for your next command, hopefully kind of a, kind of a position. And the way that the, especially the air force, I would imagine the other services are very similar. The way that they do it is, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be pushed hard, especially when you're in a command position, you're on call every day of the year. I mean, 24 hours a day, you've got to be ready to respond. And so, and so it's a, Pretty grueling experience. It can be. It can be a somewhat grueling experience. On the back end of that, um, they try to give you some downtime. Maybe go get a master's degree, kind of decompress a little bit. Take a take a job where you can think and 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 rebuild a little bit before we put you back to a follow on command with more responsibility. So that was where I was when we got the news, and I had just passed my my annual flight physical. So. I was thinking everything was rock solid and I was in a perfect position to come back in, in those days I was flying F-22s to come back to the F-22, which was our most sophisticated fighter at the time. And I was very much looking forward to it. So this is, this was a, a rock to that system. It were definitely off script, but to answer your question, finally, how did that, how did I process that? I think immediately what came to my mind was, all right, another piece of adversity, we're going to figure this thing out. And the way that it was translated was I took my wife to lunch, um, which was an interesting and unique thing to do on the heels of that kind of news. But I was starving. Colonoscopy, <laughs> you're, you're a day and a half of, of not eating. I was not about to die hungry. My wife was six months pregnant with our fourth child. She was always hungry and you know, we had nothing better to do. And so she accompanied me there. Well, you had a, a little one coming too. We so did. That's a, that's a, that adds to the emotion behind this. That added to some of the complexity. That's going to hit in the next couple of days. But in that moment, I looked my wife in the eyes and said, I just want you to know one thing. Our story just got better. And that comes from growing up in a fighter squadron where you know that nothing's ever going to go according to plan. And right. yet the expectation of the country is we're going to find a way to win. And it sounds yeah. maybe simplistic. But it's it's really the way that we we organize. We know we know that as bad as we might predict things uh, could could get, they're going to be worse. But when we still win, the story that we get to tell about having overcome this, the other thing, and then that other thing, and then another other thing, and then another succession of other things is so much more impactful than if everything had gone exactly according to plan. And so we kind of almost dare I say, get into a, a notion of bringing on because yeah. I want to prove how good we are. And the more adversity there is, the more, the more I get to highlight that. And so when you, when you live that way, then there is no other option. That is the conversation that you have, at least initially, it'll take mm -hmm. me a few days before, frankly, April 
the tears will start flowing and, and it, you know, the reality hits that there are certain things that I can control here. I can control yeah. mindset, right? I can, I can control my disposition and, and, and my overall attitude. I cannot control when it is that I'm called away from this earth. And so if yeah. my bride is left by herself in that moment, I, I felt really exceptionally bad for her. Yeah. Well, right. I, I really find what you said to be an incredible thing. Our, our life is about to get better or, or this is going to just go great because I agree with you. I think that when you think about things and you live your life that way uh, on now this and then what, you know, and you, you just start pushing forward on almost like a not acceptance, uh, I dare say, but I know that with me and my health journey, it has been like that for me, almost where I, I lived in denial of, and I refused to accept. And that is part in why I went into law enforcement, because I refused for my disease to define who I was. And I wanted to prove to myself and to the world that I was stronger than that, that that, that wasn't me. And so I, I just really love that insight and that understanding of, you know, I'm hit, I'm getting hit with something hard, but that's how life is, right? Especially when you're in the military or first responder or in any sort of capacity like that, where anything could happen in the split second. But truly, people who go into those fields, I think, have this great understanding. But the but the reality is that anything could happen at any second to anybody. I mean, getting into a car is the most dangerous thing that we do every single day, statistically, with automobile accidents, right? And so it, it's just a different reframe. Exactly. And it, but it's, it's a very, very important one. And accepting the fact that things aren't going to always go brilliantly, and that there will be adversity, uh, I think is is preparing oneself and having the proper disposition to be ready for it when it hits. Yeah. So that the blow isn't as hard as it could be. And we're already starting to think about how it is that we're going to rebound from it. And it's easier in certain circumstances. It's infinitely harder in other circumstances. But this idea of being prepared to be resilient, I think, is an important one for us all to kind of wrestle with and think about. And, and I would say I wasn't intentional about that. I just benefited from growing up in a world where that's just the way it was. And so you had to deal with it. And in fact, one of our non-negotiables was we don't tolerate victimhood here. So in a fighter squadron, like if you're going to, if you're consistently the victim, like if, if you always have to tell the story about how it was unfair to you this day, in very short order, you're not going to be part of that fighter squadron. It's that simple. Yeah. That's yeah, a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, there's no, no structure there. If that's the play, there's no, uh, teammanship in that. And so absolutely you can't, you can't move forward with that. And, you know, one of the, one of the people that I really appreciated coming on the show was, uh, Colonel Lieutenant Dave Grossman. And he's written on combat and on killing and he's done all these things. And I was very excited to have him like I'm excited to have you on the show because he has really dived into all of those mentalities. And he calls it the the sheep and the sheep dog. I like that. He's yeah. also a member of Team Never Quit, isn't he? You know, I'm not sure. I think he is. I think he's on uh, Marcus Luttrell's team there. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. 
Yeah, he uh, he very much influenced me when I was back in my law enforcement days and reading up on all the things to, you know, to show up and perform at the best you can. And so I really dived into to people who wrote things on how to respond, especially in, you know, uh, active service, you have something happen and how do you get back to be able to perform, you know, your, your motor functions are off the charts, right? And you, it's very difficult to do that when something is happening so quickly. So I learned first from him to that, that was where breath exercises really came into play was through his teachings. And so I really appreciated that. And, and, you know, so much of that as well. And I think that it really sets you up for so much more success with that mentality when something outside of that happens, when in our personal lives, the things that physically are, are outside of our control. That's right. In fact, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned breathing techniques. We, we don't use that um, in the flying world, or at least not in the flying world when I was in it. Or if we did, I totally missed the mark. But we we had a um, a similar approach uh, all the way back in the early part of uh, pilot training, where every day is a pretty intense day. Like you know, you're you're being rated every day, being graded every day. How you finish the course sort of dictates what airplane you're going to fly. So every every day is a pressure cooker. Uh, you start the day with stand up, and um, and before anybody got a chance to fly, the uh, your flight you're kind of head instructor pilot would would put a scenario up on the board on the uh, acetate with the overhead and say all right here here's where you are today you're upside you're halfway through a loop you're upside down at 150 knots uh, indicated airspeed uh, you look down there's a master caution light you have a right engine fire light lieutenant teshner you have the aircraft then you have, you have to stand up lieutenant teshner would stand up and have to simulate flying this uh, correctly handling this emergency appropriately and bringing it back and there were three steps that we always we always followed every time that we dissected one of these uh, scenarios the first step was to maintain aircraft control like if you if you just jump into trying to solve the problem and you don't fly the airplane there's a decent chance you might crash the airplane while trying to solve the problem that's unacceptable so it was drummed into us from the first moment maintain aircraft control then analyze the situation and take appropriate action to finally land as soon as conditions permit. Mm. While it's not a breathing exercise, it serves the same function. Maintain aircraft control. That's an opportunity to kind of recage the brain. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, they're high pressure. Don't call on me. Don't call. Oh, you just called on me. Let me stand up now and, and not goon this up. Because if I make a mistake here, I'm grounded today. And that's, right. a, that's a big, you know, ding on the, on the daily report. So maintain aircraft control is your opportunity to breathe for a second. And by mm -hmm. stating that and how it is that you'd fly the airplane through the remainder of its loop, or maybe roll wings level and start to gain some airspeed while you point towards the closest available runway, you're already starting to think, how do I do this thing the right way and not mess it up? I think the same approach is outstanding in life. Yeah. I am curious, you know, how do we describe that to people who have never experienced that? Because Cujo, I feel so much that we are, are really gifted with how to respond in a different manner. Even if things are happening very quickly, you are able to slow it down in order to really process what's happening and to be able to respond more effectively. And I think that the 
the training is so intense, but it, it sheds light to a new birth of being able to respond in different capacities. That's right. Um, and, and I think, you know, and I get asked all the time, like, would you send your kids to go join the military? Uh, what do you think about, you know, serving these days? And the answer is absolutely yes. There's such value in being in, in, in these pressure situations that force you to have to learn to deal with it. And it prepares you to be able to slow things down. And that's exactly what you want to do yeah. when you're always going so, so fast. And so uh, there's a benefit to going through established training methods. For those who don't have that opportunity, you know, for whom military service or, or being in law enforcement or being a first responder isn't an opportunity, we can still follow those same approaches and how it is that we deal with each and every day. I mean, maybe a takeaway from this particular episode of your outstanding podcast is for all of us to consider how it is the next time that something massive hits. And maybe it's a, hey, the boss needs this thing now, not tomorrow, needs it now. So whatever you've got, you've got to present it now. Or maybe you're the one that's giving the speech up there on stage because somebody else got sick and you are identified as the person that has to do one of the most frightening things that people can be called to do, get mm. up and talk. And, and maybe instead of just panicking right there, it's a moment to go, okay, main, how am I going to maintain aircraft control? I'm going to maintain my poise right now while slowing everything down. And then how am I going to analyze the situation and take appropriate action, craft a plan right now that's going to help me to be able to make it through this demand of the now, knowing that ultimately I've got to land this sucker. And we can reverse that on the little things to predispose us to being ready to use it for the big things, because, you know, in this life, the big things, they're going to come. So preparing ourselves however we can, I think, makes abundant sense. Let's be ready to be resilient. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. Yeah. I, I, I like to say you don't rise to the level of your courage. You fall to the level of your training. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard that. And mm -hmm. it, it's, it's the same with anything. And so when you talk about how if we just practice these techniques of slowly slowing down and analyzing that really once something, when we have to rise to that occasion, we're able to meet it at a better way. That's right. And, I, and then you go back to, okay, hey, congratulations, probably colorectal cancer is going to take us five days to get the biopsy results back. So good luck. You know, <laughs> you have a big choice to make in that moment. There's so many things spinning. There's, there's too much all at once. It's a tidal wave that you're faced with. Yeah. Among the many considerations, 
you know, where are you going to go address this? I mean, at the time we're living overseas, we're in Germany, we're in a foreign country, we're on the economy, we're dealing with doctors that my wife can't understand because she doesn't happen to speak fluent German. Baby on the way. Is that why they told you good luck? (laughs) Well, not not exactly. (laughs) That was just my little addition to this whole thing. You know, but, but we have, we also have the right to choose the mindset that we're going to go into this thing with. And so taking a moment to breathe, very important. We didn't craft our plan in those early moments. Like the only thing that we decided to do was that we were not going to be victims here. And we're going to, we're going to do everything that we can to prolong our life. And then we're going to take some time. Our planning session lasts a couple of weeks thereafter, as we think through all the different possibilities. And as we interview doctors and surgeons and consider implications of going across ocean and and doing all these other things. But so like, but so in that case, we didn't have to solve all the problems at once. All that really mattered was, was that we committed to solving them the best way that we could, that anything that we had control over, we were going to put the right amount of rigor in and maintain a positive attitude with. I think that was probably the best thing that we, we could have done. That's also courtesy of growing up this way. And I, I got to say, throughout that entire horrific experience, we're talking two GI surgeries, which are really, really, really tough to recover from. My wife and I probably laughed more than we had ever laughed in our lives. And it was such a cathartic experience, which we needed on a daily basis. And it drew us so much closer. So the mindset mm-hmm. was right. And what it ends up doing is it allows the two of us to fly closer formation than we've ever flown. We were pretty enamored in one another when we met. We had a really, really solid, I'd say, outstanding relationship coming into this thing. But it got so much better going through it. And the fact that we could have a positive disposition in the midst of so much uncertainty and, and trouble was a humongous blessing for which I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> and we I didn't have the problems at once. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a really incredible testimony to Cujo because we were not in this just by ourselves when this is met, uh, this, this is put on us where we get this, uh, you know, we're not doing well physically. And in our family members, it really greatly affects, especially the ones that are the closest to us. And your wife at the time being pregnant. And then of course, she has her own emotions going on with all of that is pretty telling that you have a beautiful partner and spouse. So I think that that's incredible. And it is so helpful. I mean, it makes a world of difference when we have somebody there in our corner. Yeah, there's no doubt the good Lord blessed me abundantly uh, in terms of who my spouse became. And then I'll also give massive kudos to my kiddos who, as I was recovering, I mean, multi-month-long process, GI surgery, really just not fun to recover from. Um, Kiddos were so kind. Mm. Even when I was the grouchiest of myself, like the worst that I'd ever been in terms of grumpiness and whatnot, Mm -hmm. Uh, they showed me unconditional love. They rose to the occasion. And these are little, tiny little tykes working to make sure that they helped me to get through these difficult times. I'll never forget that. I give extended credit to the two kids that weren't there through that phase. Uh, I feel like they would have done the same thing. This at a time when it's very easy to feel alone. And let's just attack this straight on April. Let's just acknowledge the fact that when you call me and you say, hey, Cujo, I've got some really bad news to share with you. Like this horrible thing is about to happen to me. If I have no experience dealing with that, 
my default is probably to avoid you for a little bit because I ultimately don't want to say or do the wrong thing. And so in trying to not be bad, I actually am worse. I'm going to abandon mm -hmm. you for a little bit. Right? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. All the time. I experienced the same thing. Totally abandoned by dear friends who didn't know what to do. And so the yeah. easiest thing was just not to do anything. And that, that makes the family piece even more important. That's actually really, it's a good point for all of us to consider the next time that we get informed of some horrible news from somebody. Probably the worst thing we can do is assume that by saying the wrong thing, we're going to make things worse. I'd say the worst thing we can do is not say anything. So let's, yeah. let's just, let's just vow to say something. Take a risk, say even the thing that, that you may not feel super comfortable. I promise you on the receiving end, somebody's going to be appreciative of the fact that you did something different from everybody else. And that's going to be very welcome. I agree with you. That's really powerful to bring up because, and you, you hit it on the nail. People don't become engaged with you because they don't know how to respond. They, they can't, they can't understand it. And so they don't want to. And so the, the natural thing is to, to retract and to avoid. And you're right. It is more damaging to those who are in the position than, than they know. And so by being avoidant, you don't really know the damage that you're doing. So I like that you bring that up. That is such a common, common thing that comes up on the show. We've had numerous guests, but for those who have gone through cancer or any other sort of those bigger life transitions, so many of them have these, uh, they, they say that they've lost friends and family along the way, people who were the closest to them and they thought would be there by their side. And then they just weren't. So it's, it's fascinating when all of this is shed to light, when things happen. So I would also love to know, Cujo, because you mentioned these were some of your grumpiest times and your kids, you know, were, were there for you regardless. Now, I know that when I'm grumpy, it's because more often than not, I'm hurting and, you know, I, I'm just in pain or I'm frustrated because I, I can't do something that I want to do. And so when you're put in that position where you're unable to care for yourself the way that you normally do, it's and likely, especially for a man, I know that it was very difficult for me as a woman when I'm in a position where I can't get up and, and cook dinner or I can't get up and, and feed myself or dress myself. It makes me angry and I don't want anybody else to do it for me. And so when we're putting those positions and I would think, especially as a man coming from the fields that you have, it's, it's like it's this humiliating piece of you that has to come about. Yeah. So in, in my case, so on point, in my case, as a father, not being in a position to, to help my kids if they were to get hurt, I was yes. in constant panic of them doing so. So if I heard them running around knowing that I could do nothing to support them, I was, I wanted everybody to essentially live in a bubble, right? For, for all the months that I was recovering, not see or do anything, like just hang out so that I could yeah. recover so that I could then re-engage. And <laughs> the, 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 
the cool part was that they understood it. They understood why I was so quick to flare up and say, stop, don't run, don't do the thing that you're doing. Because they knew that I was a little bit less of myself than I had been. That said, this is another important feature of that whole experience of, of the cancer journey. When I was at, at my most broken, and this was back in the hospital after surgery number one, where we removed a huge chunk of my lower colon, um, I woke up one day in tears. Like Actually, the nurse was making me walk back and forth. Uh, just to prevent blood clotting or something. And I, I look like a 500-year-old man doing this. And I get to three feet away before I turn around and I just break out in tears. And, and I'm sure that she thought that I was crying about myself, like, woe is me. But actually, it was tears of joy that that came out of somewhere that I didn't know existed. I finally had empathy. Hmm. I was able to empathize specifically i remember a dinner that i had gone to my my wife and i had gone to at the reagan center in dc it was back when i was at the national war college and um we were guests of the former chairman of the joint chiefs dick myers who was one of my instructors there and we went to the dinner dressed to the nines it was such a it's just such a unique experience that a lieutenant colonel does not typically get hang out all these four stars and listen to admiral mcraven talk and it was just a really superb experience but at our at our table was a wounded warrior who had uh, lost both legs in iraq all right and and this gentleman you could tell was just not enjoying his evening and um you know everybody to include yours truly came to the table shook hands with you know thanked him for for his huge sacrifice and you could tell all the all the words that were spoken by yours truly my bride, all the way up to the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs, a whole line of four stars were falling on deaf ears. This gentleman didn't care. It wasn't until I was missing a part of me that I understood why. And it wasn't until that moment that I finally got it. This, this sense of I'm no longer whole, I'm broken, I'm not, I'm not the me that I once was, I'm never going to be that me again. Uh-huh. And I was grateful for it. And I think at that point is where I finally started to become a little bit more human than I'd ever been before. I mean, up until that moment, I was always physically fit. I was always top of the day, flying high performance fighters, pulling 9.4 Gs at the at the merger, doing all kinds of amazing things. Now I'm broken. All that's ripped away from me. And I was grateful for it. And I remain grateful for that, that sense of humanness that I think was missing in me until the point where I had a, I say I, I had a glimpse had a glimpse of what that hero had suffered and I remain grateful for that. And I'll never, I'll, I'll never forget that experience. And it'll always influence the way that I interact with people. You never know what people are dealing with, right? I mean, some of the things are the, the hurts on the outside, the wounds are obvious. A lot of them are on the inside. And if we can, if we can keep this in mind, we might be a little bit more empathetic when people aren't being their best to us. And give them a little bit of credit for the fact that they might be dealing with something, wrestling with something that we can't even see, um, mm. help us to interact more effectively with them and to ultimately be more human to them and with them as we navigate this thing called life. 
Yeah, Kujo, I can definitely see that that has created this new piece of you where you talk about being more human because you could uh, empathize, because you you felt what that was like, because this piece of you that you will never get back, you will never be the person that you were previously. And, you know, it's such a beautiful testimony to that. And also what I hear from that is you, you talked about how this person was up there being so vulnerable and sharing their journey and their story. And it wasn't necessarily having an impact on anybody in the room at that time. It's like our friends that when something happens to us and they draw away because they don't want anything to do with that. They don't want that to be a part of their reality, out of sight, out of mind. And yet that story impacted you later on. And why I bring that up and why I think it's so beautiful is because that's part of my, my the favorite part that I love doing on this show is in sharing the stories of everybody and their journeys because you never know when it's going to impact somebody at whatever moment. That's exactly right. Uh, brilliant. And um, and that's why what you're doing is so important because we don't know when we're going to need this particular conversation or the one that you did last time or the one two times ago, but it's there and you keep on adding to it. So I applaud you for that. Nicely done. Thank you. You know, tell me what you think about this, but when I was serving in law enforcement and we had we worked with domestic violence more cases than not. That was primarily what was coming in. And you you step into that field because you want to serve. And it's it's this idea. I mean, there was more to it than that for me. But, but the, in essence, that is what it is. You want to give back. You want to be the savior to, to you know, to help as many people as you can. I also grew up during... The, the Columbine shootings in Colorado. So that also influenced, but really you want to serve and you want to save the day. And what I found Cujo was that I, I wasn't, I was saving lives on occasion. Yes, there's that. And that's absolutely what needs to be there. But ultimately people didn't want to make the choice when you gave them the resources, when you gave them the, the help that was available to them. So they, felt that it was more comfortable that they stayed in that cycle of violence. And so I realized very quickly, if I wanted to make a bigger impact, then it was in giving information out to the world and sharing the stories. And then people, when they came across it, they could make that choice. But again, that's why I loved going back to your story on how you listen to this person share their journey and their story. And it didn't have the impact on you then, but it did eventually. And yes, it's very, very powerful. Yeah. Well, you know, you bring up another fascinating point. Like sometimes we think we've nailed it. Like we've figured out where we're supposed to be um, and why we're supposed to be there. I, mean, I told you I wanted to be a fighter pilot since I wanted to be an X-wing pilot at age four. Um, and I promise you, if you interviewed me, I guess over a decade ago now, back when I was still on active duty and flying, I would have said that my purpose in life is to be a fighter pilot. I'll do that until the day that I die or until they ground me, you know, which potentially hopefully is the same, same time. Um, I don't think that that's actually the case. I think I was a fighter pilot to do what it is that I'm supposed to do in this life. 
and I'm still open to pivots and redirection from above. But but ultimately, this notion of vehicle, I think you're in that exact same space. And I think that's also magnificent. You know, yeah. bigger impact is potentially made at scale, learning what it is that you learned and applying that and bringing that to a to a wider audience that isn't familiar with that, that you've lived, but can definitely benefit from it. And it's, it's the same thing I'm experiencing as well. Yeah, it's a great point that you bring up. And I think that, of course, there's people within the audience that have had, you know, times in their life where they have this strong identity of this is me, this is what I want to be, and and no other else. And you use the word open, I'm open to whatever things come my way, because I just don't know. And I don't know, because I thought this way at one point, and then something changed, because the only constant in life is change, right? And I tell you what, I, I talk about identity a lot, because that is something that I struggled with for a very, very long time, where I thought I was supposed to to remain in law enforcement, that that was so strongly my identity and that's how I needed to show up in the world. And and it was difficult to let that go. I felt less than or not worthy or whatever. Use use all the terms you want. I But I wasn't good enough or supposed to be here if I wasn't serving in that capacity. And it has shifted to where I now enjoy what I do even more. And it's through the connections and the collaborations and the people that you get to engage with. That's very amazing. Now, that all being said, you are doing something incredible now. So let's shift gears. Where did all of this come to how you show up in the world now? Where did that come from? How did that stem? Yeah, great question. Um, we'll go back to when I was teaching at our fighter weapon, at the Air Force Fighter Weapons School, which folks usually identify with the Navy, courtesy of the Paramount Pictures movie Top Gun, um, now called the Weapons Instructor Course. It occurred to me that the things that we were preaching and living there were truly universally applicable. Like how it was that we organized the team wasn't just specific to the fighter aviation space like and I, I i got the sense that what we were doing and the way that we were organizing was something that that most organizations could benefit from so that was that was implanted in my brain all the way back in 2004. rip out my lower colon can't fly airplanes the way that i used to the surgeon said i would rip apart from the inside if i tried to pull nine g's again mm. uh, i i went back to that theory that the principles that we live as fighter pilots are universally applicable and i decided to bring that to life i mean i was i was faced with a proposition of i couldn't do any of the things that i really loved doing. i couldn't fly airplanes i was trapped in a bathroom all the time my body was mm. undependable it was a very humiliating experience um i was forced to take a risk and to try to do something to provide for my family and when I tested it out, it worked. And so, and so I get to still be a fighter pilot, which I would argue it means teacher first and foremost. I just don't have to fly a plane to teach. And what I teach is what I lived. And it has been, it is so rewarding to bring the principles that I've lived and that we live in the fighter domain into the business space that I'm grateful for the pivot out of the thing that I used to love doing. And I think I love this just a little bit more. <laughs> I mean, my, my tribe will say that's sacrilege, Cujo. Who are you? How dare you say such a thing? But <laughs> it, is, it is very, very rewarding to help 
help people to be ready to be resilient, to learn constantly, yeah. how to set up for success and use the same techniques that we applied. So yeah. that's how this whole thing came about. And I'm so grateful for this journey. Yeah, the techniques are so powerful too, you know, and they're they're worth sharing and shooting or shouting from the rooftops. Now, I also hear that you you know you you had this humiliating experience and then you transitioned to being able to share. I like to think of it as when when we think about you, when we're young, we we have this physical uh Peace about us, where we're able to show up, and so we have the Superman mentality, right? We we can do all of the things and save the day, and we're able to perform in that manner. But alongside that come all of the lessons through the trials and the errors, and through the lessons of those trials and errors is where knowledge is gained, and then wisdom pertains. So when we show up in a different light and that leadership role, that teacher role, that is the wisdom. And it, it's this beautiful cycle and flow, I feel, of the, the evolution of uh, the stages of life. That's right. Absolutely. And um, I mean, if I'd known then what I know now, I'm like, <laughs> right. but, but ultimately- We're not supposed to. We're not maybe. supposed to. And I know what it is that I know now. And the fact that there's an opportunity to be able to share it, that's magnificent. It's, yeah. it's, actually, it's actually perfect. And so uh, I'm glad that things have worked out the way that they have. Frankly, I think this is about the best they could have. Yeah. So I want to definitely make sure I have it here on the screen where people can find out more about you, www.robertteschner.com. I'm saying your last name correctly, am I? That's right. Perfect. Beautiful. Good. And yeah, I mean, you're doing so many cool things. Your story is awesome. I love how you just share so authentically with your audience. And it's such a beautiful thing. So I very, very much appreciate you. I want to thank you so much for your service in all of those capacities. Well, thank you. And the feeling is mutual. And I'll return all of those kudos and accolades to you because you're doing the exact same thing but much more frequently and better, more eloquently than I do. So thank you for that. Thank you for what it is that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Oh, love that. Makes me blush. Thank you so much. Uh, and to our beautiful audience, thank you so much for tuning in because without you, the show wouldn't be possible. If you have any questions for, for us, for Cujo, reach out. You can always leave comments in the comments section and we will get back with you. And so I want to say again, thank you so much, Cujo, for being a guest on the show. Very honored. And uh, for all of those uh, tuning in, well, let's see, we have a common, excuse me, a comment that came through. I want to bring it in. Manly says salute to all the veterans this week, November 11th. So that is a very good point. I want to bring that in too. Love it. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning in. Goodbye for now. We will see you next time. <laughs>